You're listening to Museum Unlocked, recorded at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History here in Boulder, a place to be curious and be inspired. I'm Pat Kostelik, director of the museum. These podcasts have been created in the time of COVID and are designed to help you gain a behind-the-scenes view into the work and the people of the CU Museum. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode two of Museum Unlocked, where we investigate the careers and journeys of the people behind the CU Museum. I'm your host, Rebecca Kuhn, Exhibit and Program Developer at the CU Museum, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mariah Green, Museum and Field Studies Master's student. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Jalen Eberly, Curator of Fossil Vertebrates and Professor of Geological Sciences. Welcome to the show, Dr. Eberly. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Well, we know that you have a variety of roles here at the CU Museum, and we would love to just hear a little bit about kind of what what are those roles? Sure, sure. So uh, as you indicated, my, um, my title is a curator at the museum, which means I oversee a collection, specifically the fossil vertebrate collection. We're about 100,000 strong right now in terms of, of the specimens that we hold. And I also um, look at ways to grow that collection. Uh, and uh, and uh, students that I advise, as well as myself and others that I work with, we also do research on that collection. Um, we also do a lot of outreach associated with the museum. So, for example, we provide content to exhibits. We may provide some of the scientific background information for exhibits, uh, etc. Um, we handle inquiries. We do loans. So there are often researchers that want to borrow specimens from us, fossil specimens, to study for their own research. So we send specimens out. We um, we return those specimens to the collection. We digitize, which means we are um, taking images of our specimens and we're putting it out there online so people on the other side of the world can see our specimens. Uh, so we do a, a lot of things. A curator, that, that term curate, has a lot of different activities associated with it. Also, as a professor at the university here, I, um, I teach classes in earth history, in paleontology, in vertebrate paleontology, which is to study vertebrates are animals that have bones, and so I, that's my specialty. And then I also teach in the museum and field studies program, uh, specifically classes that are more of a paleontological nature, but that are very you know collections based and more museum based classes as well. So, and then I mean, there's always activities of um, advising and mentoring students, which is a lot of fun. Uh, I work with a lot of different graduate students. I think I've advised 20 graduate students now, and uh, so I work with students and um, help them with their research, help to train them in research, to mentor, to coach. Um, so, so I wear a lot of different hats. I guess is what I would say. Yeah, definitely. So let's focus specifically on your role as a research scientist. Tell us about what you research. Sure, sure. Thanks, Mariah. Uh, what, well, what I work on, I work on fossil mammals. And um, specifically, I look at mammals that live during past times of climate change. And most of my work has involved um, past intervals of time when it's been particularly warm. By looking at the faunas that lived at that time, the mammals that lived at the time, how did they evolve? Um, how did they how did they live during that time? Um, 
by doing that, we can get a better idea of what we may be headed for as the earth continues to warm. So I'd say that's kind of my focus. And I've worked in a lot of different places. So my research is heavily field oriented, which means I go out in the field and I collect fossils. Um, I work a lot in the Arctic, um, particularly the high Arctic in Canada, as well as on the North Slope of Alaska. And I look at mammals that lived in those areas. Well, probably my, the area I've worked in most is what's called the early Eocene epoch, which was 50 to 55 million years ago. And I look at how the Arctic uh, was at that time, both the climate, the environment, and also the, the animals that lived there at that time. Um, I also, though, work in um, intervals that are earlier, for example, the late Cretaceous period when we had dinosaurs living on the north slope of Alaska. Well, underneath those dinosaurs in the understory were also very tiny mammals living uh, on the north slope of Alaska, some at that time 80 to 85 degrees north latitude. So um, that's where I specialize. That my area is fossil mammals, and I particularly like to work in the Arctic. With that said, I live in Colorado. We live in a wonderful place surrounded by rocks and fossils, and so I also have a lot of field sites in western Colorado. I've worked Pawnee Buttes. I've worked the Denver Basin, which is what Denver is sitting in, and then I've looked at the western slope as well over by Rangeley, Colorado, and, and places like that. Just to like track off a little bit, I know in 2014 you did find like uh, fossil specimens of like a tapir, but then also like a tiny like hedgehog in like British Columbia. Can you like describe that day or what you remember feeling? Uh, well, so I published those, but I was not the one to, to discover those fossils. Those were discovered by folks that happened to be working up there at the time. And um, in fact, one of the fossils was discovered by a student of paleobotany. And paleobotany is the study of fossil plants. And a good friend of mine is a paleobotanist up in Brandon, Manitoba, and he had taken a crew out, out to British Columbia to look for fossils. And one of his students happened to be breaking open rocks with her rock hammer and um, just, you know, hit on the rock the right way. The rock fell apart, and she looked in there, and she could see something sparkly, kind of shiny. And when they got their hand lenses out and looked at it, it was a very, very, very tiny, or fairly tiny uh, jaw, partial jaw. Often discoveries of fossil vertebrates um, don't always come from people who work on them. At the time, I was not up there and the paleobotanists were working the site and said, oh, Jalen, you work on Eocene and you've got a lot of experience in Canada. Can you help us? And so that's how I got involved in that project. Are there times that it's been kind of the reverse role where you're out doing field work and you're looking for fossils and you find some fossil that's really amazing, but not really your focal area? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah we have that all the time, Rebecca. Yeah. Um, and in fact, my the crews that I work with in the Arctic, when I, when I lead an expedition up to the Canadian high Arctic, I tend to bring people with me of different expertise. I, there's no sense having, you know, five of us that work on fossil mammals. <laughs> I mean, it's great to have a couple maybe that work on fossil vertebrates, but then you want to bring a paleobotanist. You want to bring a stratigrapher who can study the rocks and tell you where your localities are in time relative to one another. Um, you want a geologist that just 
their boots on the ground looking at the rocks telling you the sedimentology what does this sandstone tell me about the environment for example were these animals near a river were these animals on a, de a bar deposit things like that so i tend to build my crews in such a way when i'm leading an expedition i tend to build a crew that is diverse in terms of their their backgrounds and their expertise so that we hopefully have someone that can can tackle it if we if if i find a a fossil stump which we find a lot of in the arctic these beautiful fossil stumps it's great to have a paleobotanist on site. Now, so you, there are many times you, you, you don't. And so um, in many cases, when we get back, I'll be reaching out to scientists of different backgrounds than myself and saying, hey, can you help with this project? Usually they're quite happy to help. So to me, probably the most exciting research I've done has been projects that are um, involving all, you know, variety of, of different sciences. Yes, I can describe the fossil mammals from the Arctic. That's fun. But wouldn't it be more exciting to think about the, the entire environment, the entire community? How did these fossil mammals interact with those dense forests that uh, covered the Arctic 50 to 55 million years ago? And, and what else was living there? Well, there were alligators and turtles and things like that. And those all require different experts in, in the field of vertebrate paleontology. That sounds like such a neat collaboration between different scientists. And I'm just picturing you out tromping around in your, in your boots in the Arctic with a bunch of other paleontologists. And I'm, is there a moment that comes to mind when like, okay, you're all out there and you're seeing something really interesting and there's some kind of conversation where you're all kind of hypothesizing or discovering something together and kind of starting to put a picture together in your mind of what you think was happening back in the Eocene? You know, I, I would say those times are usually when we're all back at camp together. And so, um, so, so what'll happen just as, just if we're, let's say we're in the Arctic right now, um, usually everybody's up fairly early. Um, we, um, we usually call in to our logistics provider by 7 a.m., what they call schedule, and you call in and just say, yep, I'm okay. And then, you know, we have our breakfast and away we go. But often the times that we get to collaborate, if you will, in the field are when we're having our breakfast or we're having our dinner in the evening and we, we're sitting around talking about what we what we discovered that day or what sites we saw. And that's when we get into these conversations. I, I do recall a conversation I had with uh, one of our, our a, pe a person in my camp that's a stratigrapher. He is looking at the rocks and he's looking at where the fossil localities sit relative to one another. And so we know which sites are older and which sites are younger than another site. And I remember talking to this gentleman about, well, we found such and such at this location and it was, you know, maybe a taper or something like that. And uh, he'll say, oh, well, you know, then that had to be, um, that's an older site than the one where you had this other fossil. Okay. And so then we start putting things together and thinking about it and go, well, okay, well, where are the fossil tree trunks? Where's the stump layer relative to the fossil vertebrate layers? Oh, okay. Well, that it's sitting in there. And often that's when we're, um, you know, kind of putting things together and having fun with, with what might've been going on environmentally up there. That, and also when you get back, once you get back, and you really have the time to study those fossils. To me, that's when a lot of the great collaboration occurs. Is then you're, you're, you know, the light bulbs are going on pretty regularly, and you're going, oh, 
that's what that animal was. Then you reach out to somebody else and I say, well, hey, we've got, well, for example, the British Columbia example that you gave Mariah. Um, you know, once I told the guys there, the paleobotanists, I said, hey, you've got a hedgehog up there. That's like one of the oldest members of the hedgehog family ever. Really? Well, what kind of, what, what do you think it could have been eating? Well, if it's eating insects, we had a paleoentomologist who looked at fossil insects from British Columbia. So that's when some of the collaborations occur, I'd say, is really when you get the stuff back and you're able to put it under a microscope and, and really understand what you're what you're looking at. So what motivates you to do your research and what do you love the most about doing your research? Well, maybe I'll start with the second question there. What do I love the most? You know, a lot of it, I think, is is just the the feeling of discovery. That You know, you, you discover something new. Um, that could be in the field. When we're working in the Arctic, it's pretty exciting to go into a place that um, folks have not really gone before, that a lot of scientists have not worked before. That to me is always exciting because when you go into places where there haven't been a lot of discoveries, um, there's often many waiting to happen, or at least we hope, uh, we're hopeful. And so almost anything that we find in the Canadian high Arctic is new. And to me, that's really exciting. Um, but it's not just finding a new fossil or a new species or, or that sort of thing. It's also finding, in a sense, um, new or, or long extinct environments. Um, and those are the discoveries that you, as I mentioned before, that you, you make in the lab often um, when you start putting all the pieces together. I'd say when I first started in the Arctic, it was mainly trying to figure out who lived there. Okay, who, what, what species lived there. Now we're getting into the why and the how questions. And to me, those are the really exciting questions. They're also the most difficult to answer in paleontology. We can't take our time machines back and, and look at how a taper was operating in the Arctic or where the primates were living in the Arctic. Were they hanging in the trees and what trees were they hanging in and so forth? We can't do that. So we're using other tools or proxies to to test hypotheses about diet, about where an animal lived, etc. But it's difficult for us to test in, in many respects. And to me, that's very exciting too. You're trying to answer a question that is really hard to answer. Uh, for example, diet questions and things like that, how animals operated in their past environments. Those are tough ones to get at in paleontology. And to me, those are very exciting though, because if you can get an answer, it's just that much more exciting because um, you're already going in, in a sense, behind the eight ball. So to me, those are the most exciting things is, is, you know, field discoveries, finding a new fossil or a new species or finding a new location for an animal. Um, tapers. Tapers today live in tropical environments. Well, during the early Eocene, 50 to 55 million years ago in the high Arctic, they lived and they were actually quite abundant. So uh, finding new locations or new distributions for animals is really exciting too. As to what motivates me, I think it is, you know, saying, hey, what am I going to discover today? Or, you know, what kind of question am I going to try to answer today? I think all scientists are curious people. We like to ask a lot of questions. And whatever that question is, that's what's going to motivate us for that day, I think. I want to just rewind a minute. Are you saying that the Arctic used to be like super tropical? <laughs> well, okay, so tropical, probably not the best word, even though it has been used for the Eocene Arctic. It wasn't we, what we would think of as tropical. But if you think about today, um, say, Washington 
uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, places like that, where you have rainforest, right? It's not tropical rainforest, but it's rainforest. All right, you know, dense forests, high moisture. That's what we had in the Eocene Arctic. So um, 50 to 55 million years ago, if I could take my time machine back, here's what I think I would see. I would see an Arctic blanketed in forests. And these aren't any forests. These are um, cypress swamp-like forests, the kinds of forests that you see, for example, in the southeastern U.S. today. Um, so very dense, swampy forests the Arctic would have been covered in 50 to 55 million years ago. And then in that forest, you had alligators, several different families of turtles, a giant salamander, and then you would have had all sorts of mammals, things like tapirs, primates were probably living in the trees. We have a couple different families of primates up there, and an animal called Corypidon, which is, it's an extinct animal. They would have looked a bit like a, a pygmy hippo in terms of their, their appearance and probably their behavior as well. They were uh, semi-aquatic guys hanging out in, in the swamps. So yes, the Arctic was um, a rainforest. It's what we would call in terms of temperature, we call it temperate. So we had winters that did not go below freezing or not very often. We had summers that went up to 20 to 25 degrees Celsius, so maybe in your 70s. Uh, degrees Fahrenheit. And the difference between the winter temperatures and the summer temperatures weren't as great in the Arctic as they are today. Today, they're, they're really pretty big, right? They get very cold in the winter, minus 40 Fahrenheit, things like that. But at this time in the Arctic, we were dealing with pretty comfortable temperatures, but certainly not what we would consider tropical temperatures. So does that help a little bit? Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm curious about the interface between paleontologists like yourself and climate scientists or evolutionary biologists to help fill in some of the gaps around you know, how the earth has changed, um, you know, including its climate and including those localities of animals that we would find closer to the equator today. How might you be involved in collaborations with scientists that study what's going on with climate and animals today and using the past to help answer those questions about how it's changed over time? That's a great question, Rebecca. I would say we are pretty heavily involved with climate scientists. So, so if you think about what climate scientists are trying to do, they are trying to predict where we're going in terms of climate today. Now, how can we predict via a model? Often they're using climate models. How can we determine whether a model works? Well, what we can do, what climate scientists will do, is they will try to back predict. So if you've got lots of data for the early Eocene, for example, we know that in the early Eocene, 50 to 55 million years ago, the Arctic had mild temperatures, didn't drop below freezing in the winter, or not very often, and had this diverse array of plants and animals, and was forested. Well, climate modelers will attempt to back predict the Eocene. They'll, with their models, they will plug in different parameters and try to back predict the Eocene. And that's, that's important to be able to do, because if we can't back predict, how can we expect to predict with a model? If we can't determine what was going on in the Eocene with our models. And so often, climate folks will use our early Eocene Arctic as something that they want to try and back predict. 
So when you say back predict, what does what does that look like? What what's the kind of data that you're helping give climate scientists that they're using to create those models? So we're often giving temperatures. I give um, so I do a little bit of geochemistry as well. Basically, I look at geochemical makeup of uh, mammal teeth, for example. Where uh, we know that the geochemistry of teeth and bones is is cor- correlates actually with climate. It correlates with the water these animals drink that in turn can correlate with paleo temp. And so we can actually provide paleo temperatures through the geochemistry of the fossils in addition to the animals themselves. So if we think about alligators in the Arctic, alligators in the Arctic are telling you something pretty important. The Arctic's not freezing. Um, we look at alligators today and we use what's called the nearest living relative approach. Um, we can probably tell you just by looking, saying there's alligators in the Arctic and there's a whole bunch of turtles, we can say, well, it probably wasn't freezing. And we can even utilize the plants and the animals to come up with a range of temperatures by looking at nearest living relatives. I also, do, though, do the geochemistry because I think you really need an independent means of nearest living relative uh, to, to come up with the temperatures as well. And so when you do all these different temperature estimates, you can actually come up with a range of temperatures, a winter temperature, a summer temperature, et cetera. And climate modelers can then say, okay, well, let's plug in all these parameters. Can we predict the temperatures that Jalen's animals are telling us it was 50 to 55 million years ago? Right now for the Eocene Arctic, really hard. The models have had a really challenging time uh, predicting that. In fact, I had one climate modeler say, Jalen, can't you put hair on your alligators? <laughs> can't you make them warm-blooded? Can't you do something? Because I can't get you a temperature above freezing in the winter. And so so that's one thing I think that we do provide, that these paleo worlds, these, these times of past global warmth, are providing opportunities for climate modelers to attempt to back predict, to, to see if their models will actually work um, and back predict the ESC. That's one thing. Um, Sorry, I'm curious. So how, okay, you can estimate temperature based off of a fossil that you have in the museum collection. Well, not you. it depends on what you're doing for temperature. If you're doing geochemical work, you're going to need multiple fossils. You're going to be sampling, like what I do, I'll sample fish, turtle, uh, mammal, and we plug those into models as well that estimate temperature. So that is one way to get at temperature. How does that process, like, what are you doing to, like, how does that geochemistry work? Like, you take a specimen, you take multiple specimens um, from what you think is the same, a similar time frame. And then, and what do you do with those fossils to... Well, you, you sample them and what you're specifically looking at is the oxygen isotope composition. And it's oxygen isotope composition of those teeth correlates with the water these animals are drinking that in turn correlates with paleo temperature is what I'm getting at. Yeah. So that's the geochemical approach, but you could also certainly use the nearest living relative approach. And a lot of my colleagues who work on fossil plants will look specifically at the different genera and species of fossil plants that live in the Arctic, look at the distribution of their descendants today in terms of the climatic windows that they're operating under, and then come up with a range of temperatures that way as well. Ultimately, Rebecca, you want to have multiple proxies or multiple ways to get at temperature, all independent of one another. You know, so ideally you want temperatures based maybe on your fossil plants, 
you want it based on geochemistry. And then there are other methods that use um, what are called soil bacteria or crenarchaeota that come up with yet another uh, way of getting at temperature. And if all of these temperatures converge on a general similar range that tells you the Arctic was temperate, it didn't go below freezing in the winter, maybe hit 20 to 25 degrees Celsius in the summer, then that's ideal, right? That's a, a much more robust piece of data or multiple pieces of data inference made from the data than say having one single temperature indicator or two uh, or three, you know. So ultimately, we try to get as many different proxies for paleo temperature as we can. Uh, I hope that answers that a little bit. But I want to go back to that question you asked me about what, what else can, say, paleontology provide to folks that work on animals today. If you look at organisms today, say, uh, you know, particular kind of mammal or particular kind of fish, for example, um, they live in a particular environment, right? And, and that'll tell you where they are living today. But one could ask the question, did they always live in that environment? How do we know the absolute window in environment and paleoclimate that an animal can, can live in? How do we know the full constraints? I, I don't think for some animals, today's environment for them is all that they can handle. Um, and so I'll give you an example. So we worked um, on, in the Western Arctic. And when I was working in the Western Arctic on an island called Banks Island in Canada, we collected literally thousands of shark teeth. Um, no mammals, but I said, okay, I got thousands of shark teeth. I guess we're working on sharks for a while. And I recruited a graduate student, Aspen, who came here to work on fossil sharks. She had worked on modern sharks. And so she ended up working on fossil sharks with me. And um, what we were able to determine, largely Aspen was able to determine, is that all of these shark teeth, almost all of them, belong to sand tiger sharks, which we have living today. And in fact, one of the genera that we identified from Banks Island in the Canadian Arctic is a genus that we have living today. And what it was telling us, this was so cool, is that the sharks, this shark, sand tiger shark, um, during the early Eocene was living in an Arctic ocean that was essentially brackish. It wasn't fully marine. In fact, it was closer to freshwater than it was to marine. Now, what's that telling you about sand tigers today? Well, I think it's telling you that, at least in the Eocene, these guys could handle a fair amount of environmental difference compared to what they're living in today. They were living in an Arctic ocean that was closer to freshwater to a lake than it was to an ocean. So to me, I think maybe one of the most important pieces of information that paleontologists can provide to evolutionary biologists, to people working today on extant animals, is what is the window that that animal can tolerate? Where can it live? We don't know their full environmental window until we look at some of their, um, their ancestors and their, their cousins that lived millions of years ago. Tell us about how your research provides relevant insights into real-world problems, briefly. <laughs> well, kind of, I mean, maybe, maybe um, adding on to what we were talking about, climate change is a huge issue today. I'm sure you can't turn on the radio or the TV uh, prior to the COVID situation. Uh, you couldn't turn it on without hearing something about climate change and specifically about global warming. Where are we going with global warming? As we found out is that people don't like um, not knowing. 
right? We, we don't like not knowing where we're going or, or what could potentially happen. And I think honestly, by looking at these past intervals of global warmth and trying to understand the animals that lived there and the plants that lived there, this is going to give us a better idea of where we are going as the, as the earth continues to warm. We're not seeing this turnaround. I mean, as far as the models are predicting, we are, um, we are going to continue warming for a while. I think we need to be looking for more examples in the past of intervals of global warmth that we can, we can study and apply to our understanding of where we're going today with, with global warmth. You know, if you'd asked me 15, 20 years ago, hey, Jalen, how important is paleontology going to be and, and so forth? I'm not sure I would have come up with, with that kind of answer. But right now, I think geologists and paleontologists have a lot to offer to understanding where we may be going with global warmth. Maybe, you know, more so than at any other time in, in, our, in my history. We are relevant. Um, geology and paleontology are very relevant to our understanding of, of global warmth today. Awesome. Thank you. We're going to break and we'll be right back with you. Hi, my name's Jim Hockle. I'm the senior educator at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. The CU Museum creates exhibits and educational programs to foster curiosity and appreciation of the natural world and of human cultures. If we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, we would invite you to come visit our free museum on the Boulder campus, which features five exhibit halls, including paleontology, anthropology, and the Bio Lounge, a place designed especially for students. In non-pandemic times, we host lectures and programs, provide guided tours and workshops for groups of all ages, distribute hands-on educational materials to classrooms across Colorado, and offer hands-on programs for families and children, like family days and mornings at the museum. Until we can serve you in person, you can explore online exhibits, downloadable nature guides, family activities, at-home teaching resources, and even Zoom backgrounds on our Museum from Home section of our website. Explore with us at www.colorado.edu forward slash CU Museum. The University of Colorado Museum of Natural History houses the largest collections of natural history objects in the Rocky Mountain region. Currently, more than 5 million objects are here in our collections across a, a wide array of disciplines, including anthropology, botany, entomology, paleontology, and zoology. The collections include the world's oldest documented Navajo textile, the best collections in the world of lichens from the Galapagos Islands, and Colorado's largest collection of bees. Our 11 curators also conduct research and are active faculty members in the departments of ecology and evolutionary biology, anthropology, and geology here at the University of Colorado Boulder. Hello, my name is Ashley Mugley, a recent museum and field studies graduate from CU Boulder, where I focused on anthropology collections management. For my final project, I focused on identifying unassociated funerary objects and collections and assisting our new curator, Dr. Sam Platt, in preparing collections for consultations. I chose CU to continue my education due to its reputation, access to a wide network of museum professionals, and the importance of community collaboration while caring for cultural materials. The University of Colorado Museum of Natural History is home to a two-year master's degree in museum and field studies, as well as a professional certificate program. Learn more at colorado.edu slash cumuseum slash MFS. Welcome back to Museum Unlocked. Again, we're here with our guest, Dr. Jalen Eberly, 
curator of fossil vertebrates and professor of geological sciences. Take it away, Mariah. Yep, thank you, Rebecca. So, Dr. Evely, as part of your role at the University of Colorado, you are a professor of geologic science. Tell us about how you view your role as a teacher in a university setting. Well, that's a good question. I, um, I teach earth history, which is a class I taught just this spring to 150 students. And then I also teach vertebrate paleontology. And that's usually a smaller class, often a lot of graduate students and seniors in the class. Um, and then I also teach in the museum and field studies program as well. And um, so in addition to teaching, so actually classroom teaching, I also work with graduate students on their research, um, both master's students and PhD students. And in that role, I see myself as a coach, I, I think, more, more than anything, is coaching them and helping them, you know, maybe teaching techniques on the research, but also um, coaching them in, in how to tackle certain questions. But ultimately, the students are going to be, particularly graduate students, they are going to be the experts in their field. And so um, ideally as a coach, I, I, you know, I coach them uh, in everything from research to, to building confidence and, um, and so that they can take on that role as an expert in, in their field. I would say in the classroom, when I first started teaching at CU, often it was more of a kind of a passive learning style. You stand up at the front of the room and you lecture and people take notes. And I am not, I didn't think that was a good way to go personally. And, and I think what we're seeing in education research is that isn't the way that everybody learns. A lot of people learn through more active learning. And so I've evolved my classrooms, even for this big class that I taught with 150 students learning earth history, um, I've evolved it to include a lot more activities in the classroom where the students take charge of their learning. And in a sense, um, you know, I provide information at the beginning, enough background info to get them going, and then we let them go on a particular project they might be working on. And in a sense, I'm also um, moving into that coaching role. Even in a class with 150, you can move into somewhat of a more supporting coaching role as opposed to the talking head at the front of the classroom. You know, initially, I think when I started teaching 20 some odd years ago, we would be, you know, you want students to learn X, Y, and Z in earth history. They're going to need to know the geologic time scale, and they're going to need to know when the Rockies went up and things like that. But to me, particularly for these classes, these large classes that are really designed more for non-majors, people that aren't necessarily going to be geologists, my goal is to create concerned citizens. I want students to be able to read a newspaper article, and maybe it's talking about teaching evolution in the classroom, which certainly has had um, some debate across this country. I want them to be able to read that, to be able to understand the arguments for and against, and to be able to make a logical decision on that. To me, I'm providing more help to try to create concerned citizens and folks that feel comfortable thinking like a scientist, asking a question and then trying to go about methods to answer the question that they're trying to answer, uh, than I am in teaching exactly the um, the years associated, millions of years before present associated with the geologic timescale. I mean, I, I honestly, these days, I'm not nearly so concerned about whether a student can tell me 
the actual age of the permo-triassic boundary, but I am concerned how they might evaluate a hypothesis, even a hypothesis on the extinction of the dinosaurs. What would they look at? What are the questions that they would ask? And can they logically connect, you know, connect the dots to come up with their conclusion? So, so I'd say my teaching has evolved quite a bit uh, in my time at CU Boulder. And um, these days, I'm hoping the students that I work with go out there and they can make um, good, thoughtful decisions based on the information that they have at hand, whether it be from a newspaper, from a news article, from a website, from NPR, <laughs> whatever they're listening to. That's great. So, Mariah, you're a student of Dr. Eberle's. Um, yes, I am. So you're, uh, tell, tell us um, what you're studying. Uh, right now, what I'm studying is bite force. Um, comparing it between like modern mammals right now with early Paleocene mammals to kind of give us an idea of like how they lived in their environment back then. Yeah, so that's what I'm like studying for my thesis right now and working with Dr. Everly. Um, she's just been great, a super like mentor for me. <laughs> Trying not to get emotional, super kind and like caring mentor and advisor. One of the first people to actually give me like a shot in like paleontology and I really appreciate that. And she's just been helping me form my own like niche in the Museum of Field Studies program with studying like bite force early paleocene mammals and I really like appreciate her for that and just always having that time to meet either through like zoom welcome or like email. yeah definitely yeah exactly through COVID and stuff just always being there, almost like a mother figure for me so it's really like good to have you as an advisor and just being there to support me and actually like have me in this field for the first time ever as a graduate student I really appreciate that and also just being in your vert paleo class like helped me a lot so I'm a graduate of the Museum and Field Studies program as well, but I focused more on the public side of museums. And mm -hmm. so my studies in the program and my you know work with my advisor probably looked really different than the work that you do with Dr. Eberly. Could you paint me a little bit of a picture of how you two interact with the collections together and what, you know, how... Um, Dr. Everly plays a role in helping you inform your science questions and what you're trying to research. Um, well, definitely using the collections. I know Dr. Everly has told me, like, hey, you know, for this periptical skull, like, you may want to go into the collections to, like, see if the teeth matches. That's the reason why we have our collections in order to, like, um, take what we already have and use those as resources to answer, like, um, questions what we have in the future regarding, like, fossil mammals. For my uh, thesis, what I've been working on is, like, um, fossil mammals from the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. They've helped provide us with photographs of like this guy called Eoconodon, um, even some 3D like scans. So just working with like other like museums, having Dr. Everly's like support for that, connected with Tyler Lyson. But also just um, having like Dr. Everly's like support, you know, using the collections, but also preserving them through like 3D like CT scanning as well. Another ways of preserving our collections. So it's been pretty like interesting experience like for me building like niche in order to like use like technology to illuminate paleobiology. Pretty interesting. It's pretty fun. I never would have guessed in a million years that I would be using CT scanning techniques or you know x-ray microscopy to look at like mammal skulls. It's actually a pretty interesting experience. You're like a real paleontologist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then for you, Dr. Eberly, um, I'm intrigued with how university faculty can really play a role in helping young adults see their own horizons more broadly and be able to show like Mariah you are a paleontologist and like you can 
be a professional in this field and um, just kind of bolstering students. Um, I think you had said confidence, um, but also that sense of, of possibility. Can you tell us a little bit about how you, um, how you approach that? Ooh, that's a big, that's a big question. And I would say it really depends on the student. Each student is an individual. And I don't think there's a one size fits all uh, approach to how you mentor and how you coach. I would say there are common threads though. And, um, you know, a common thread that I see, I, I have had the good fortune to work with some wonderful students, Mariah included. I've advised 20 graduate students now, and I would say everybody brought something different to the table, brought a different strength. Uh, I remember giving a, this was a, a little speech years ago at a graduation, and I said, every student that I have advised has a superpower. They just don't always know what that superpower is. Um, and that's part of the job as a graduate advisor, is really to help them determine what their superpower is and also um, help cultivate it and help develop it and hone it so that it's strong. It's a really strong superpower. Um, that, and I would say confidence. I, I think where I see common thread threads through, you know, working with so many students is that often they have the know-how, they have the smarts, they have it, but they don't always have the confidence when they get here. And I think about my upbringing as an academic. I wasn't particularly confident. I wasn't born with confidence. I, I don't think I was. I think that's particularly a problem or a concern and maybe a challenge for, for young women going into fields that are not traditionally fields for young women. Uh, paleontology is one of those. Geology is one that we're not just born with confidence and we strut into the room and we feel that we know it all. Uh, we don't. And so I think a lot of my job as a, as a graduate advisor and a coach is really to help encourage a student and to, to point out to a student um, that they have every right to be confident. They are the experts in their field. You know, I look back to mine. I know I didn't have a lot of confidence starting out, and I see that as one of my jobs as a mentor because my mentors did that for me. Um, they, uh, you know, tried their best to to bring out my confidence and my strengths, my superpowers, um, and I'd like to be able to do that for the students that I work with as well. That's beautiful. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about maybe some mentors in your past that helped build that confidence and maybe helped you find your superpowers? <laughs> well, I've been very lucky. I've had a lot of mentors, and in fact, some of them I still keep in, you know, I do, I do actually. I keep in touch with probably all the folks that have mentored me at some point, and each of them has brought something different to the um, to the table. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I'm Canadian, and I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Saskatchewan, and there they didn't have a, a vertebrate paleontology program. So I fell in with the dark side of paleontology. I, I worked mostly with paleobotanists, uh, people who study fossil plants. But I uh, remember a particular mentor, Jim Bassinger, who had told me, he said, okay, Jalen, I know you want to be a vertebrate paleontologist. And you know what? As soon as you get your PhD, I'll take you to the Arctic. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. Well, I graduated from the University of Saskatchewan. I went down to the University of Wyoming, where I got other mentors, including Jay Lillibraven, my PhD advisor. And five years after that, I contacted Jim Bassinger with a PhD in hand. And I said, okay, I have my PhD. I'm ready to go. Are we going to the Arctic? And he took me the next summer. So 
you know, that you kind of go, okay, um, these people, they, they mean what, what they say. I think, you know, maybe the one great, one, one of the most important things that I can think of for a mentor is that they follow through. You know, if they say they're going to do something, they're going to do it. And, um, you know, Jim was one of my uh, best uh, mentors. You know, he took me to the North, introduced me to the North, and I haven't left the North. So I, you know, I still go up quite a bit. It's really interesting carrot to dangle it, in front of the students. And, and, you know, at the time you might think, well, you know, they're just being encouraging. They just want you to succeed. Are they really going to go through with, you know? And, yep, absolutely. Um, one of um, Jim's uh, former wives, she passed away while I was uh, postdocing. Um, Beth McIver, also a paleobotanist, but I, I worked with her in the Arctic, and she was really a mentor as well, because I remember, um, uh, you know, she, up in the Arctic, they're, they're, so one thing I should point out, when I first started working in the Arctic, and even today, there are very few women, and certainly no women leading crews, or very few um, le leading expeditions to the north. And so when you run into a woman scientist, you automatically glom on and get her advice, and um, Beth was really great about that. Uh, Beth was kind of like a, an academic mother uh, to me in a sense. And um, it was a, a really um, sad time when she passed away. She passed away of breast cancer. But, um, you know, I, I just remember, you know, even though I, what she worked on was fossil plants and I was working, looking for fossil vertebrates when I was in the Arctic, um, she had just the good coaching advice. You know, you don't need to take that. If somebody tells you to do such and such, you can stand up to them, Jalen. I mean, she was the one saying, okay, let's get some confidence here. Come on. Um, and that's what you, you know, sometimes that's what you need, right? You need somebody to kind of push you over, right? You're ready to take that plunge off the cliff into whatever, but you need somebody to give you just a little push. And uh, uh, I think that was probably Beth McIver for me. Um, but I, you know, I've had, since I've had other mentors and I'd say mentoring doesn't stop when you finish graduate school. It doesn't. Um, I have mentors that I have met at the university of Colorado that have been mentors for me as I've been on the tenure track. And, um, they're, um, they're very important as well in helping me um, kind of steer through the whole tenure track situation. So I've had several folks that I sought advice from at, at CU Boulder as well. You, you don't ever want to um, um, give up looking for mentors. Always, like always keep an eye out for mentors. I still have mentors. I still contact mentors. Of course, I'm going to have questions. You know, I don't know it all. Yeah, I had like a quick like question, but uh, what do you feel society can do to encourage more young girls and women in the sciences? That's a good question, Mariah. It's, I think part of it is, um, it's almost a chicken or the egg sort of thing to some degree, where I think um, in order for young women to, to realize, hey, I can do that, they need to see somebody that looks like them, in a sense, in that role. And I will say, growing up, I didn't. There were no paleontologists where I grew up. I didn't meet a paleontologist till I went to university. They, they didn't exist. I grew up on a farm in uh, southeastern Saskatchewan. I met farmers. Uh, I didn't meet paleontologists. I didn't meet scientists, really. My um, teachers in school would have been the closest to a scientist. You know, that, I'm not sure that's a helpful environment for, for a kid. I think really, if you're really trying to get folks into, young people into science, is having them interact with scientists, uh, realizing 
that, you know, they, they could be that as well. I remember hearing a story, this was years ago in NPR, uh, that um, a research story that suggested, honestly, if a young lady meets a scientist, maybe it's a friend of her mother's or it's somebody in the grocery store or something that they run into, literally one encounter, one meeting of a scientist talking to this person for a few minutes um, may be enough for somebody to say, hey, I can do that. I can be that person. And I can't help but think, you know, thinking back on my life, maybe I did meet somebody. I just don't remember, but maybe there was somebody that I met for a few minutes because it really doesn't take much to, you know, for somebody to meet somebody and go, hey, I can be that person. I, I could do that job. So, so I've made a point of talking to my kids' schools to go going into the schools where my my boys go to school when they invite me to, um, in part just to say, look, scientists can be women, um, paleontologists and geologists, yep, they can be women, and um, I'm one of them. So hopefully, uh, we'll see some young women coming up through through these schools and wanting to do that. So, did you tell us about how you got to where you are, like? you're speaking about having, you know, like being exposed to scientists and paleontologists as a kid. Did you dream about being a paleontologist as a kid? I did. Yeah. So I knew when I was about five years old that I was going to be a paleontologist. That's amazing. And I, I, I think that's unusual. I've been told in hindsight after, you know, asking people questions, hey, how did you do paleontology? And a lot of folks, um, I think, become interested in it once they've started college. But no, I knew when at a very young age. And part of it, so I grew up on a farm, which means you grow up on the land. You spend your time on the land. And at least I did as a kid. I, I grew up picking up rocks and um, building rafts and floating across sloughs and sinking rafts and doing things like that. And and I remember spending um, lots of summer time with a grandmother, one of my grandmothers on my, on my uh, father's side. And she was really into rocks. And my grandmother had an eighth grade education. She didn't have a driver's license, but um, she knew about rocks and to some degree fossils and she was really interested in dinosaurs and she would tell me things about dinosaurs when I was a little girl and I remember we would go walking just just as you know she'd take me by the hand and we'd go out walking and we'd pick up rocks and where I grew up in Saskatchewan you would get um, you would get some Paleozoic rocks, really, really old, hundreds of millions year old fossils, marine fossils that would have been scraped off by the glaciers and then just dumped in these glacial valleys in Saskatchewan. And so that's the kind of fossils we were getting. I mean, the very first fossil that I can remember finding was a clam. And I didn't end up studying clams, but um, but these beautiful fossils. And so I would say, you know, maybe if, if I had a mentor, if you will, early on, it was probably my grandmother, who was not a paleontologist, but just happened to be super curious about rocks and fossils and took her granddaughter out to look for them. Um, you know, we're out on the land anyways. We, we, we were, we'd be staring at the ground, looking for interesting things on the ground. That's really neat. And so then you were just on track to be a paleontologist, basically. You were like... This is what I want to do. Pretty much when I entered uh, the university, when I um, entered uh, um, university, when I started, I was 17 years old and I initially started in geology. And the reason was because my teachers, when I had talked to my teachers in high school, I said, I'm going to be a paleontologist. And they said, no, you're not. I mean, come on, you're going to need a job. There's no way. That's a needle in a haystack. You, you, no, you'd never, like, you know, the, the whole idea that that was a realistic um, job in life really wasn't there. And, and I, and I would say, I don't blame them. I don't fault them for that because I think 
it is tough to, if you, if you're a teacher and you want all your students to succeed and someone gives you a job that, you know, an idea that they want to be and you go, well, there aren't that many. I don't know one. I'm sure my teachers didn't know a paleontologist. So, you know, you kind of look at that and go, well, how am I going to advise a student? In any case, I was told, no, you really should go towards geology because at least then you could work in a mine. Yeah, right. Me in a mine? I don't think so. But in any case, maybe you could work in a mine or, or whatever. It, it's a little broader. There's certainly more jobs out there in geology than paleo, which is a subdiscipline of geology. And so I went to University of Saskatchewan, started out as a geology major, and by the second uh, year, I moved into, paleo, into what was called a paleobiology um, subdiscipline. They had just created this interdisciplinary program created by Jim Bassinger, one of my mentors, um, called paleobiology. And he said, are you interested? And I said, sure. And I was the first graduate of the paleobiology program at University of Saskatchewan. Um, and then from there, I came down to the United States, specifically University of Wyoming for my PhD. And there I worked with Jay Lilgraven, who's a fossil mammal expert. And um, that's really when my, you know, I think when I really got into fossil mammals, uh, even though I had known before I came down there that I wanted to work on fossil mammals. I, um, that's, Wyoming is a wonderful place to learn about field paleontology and fossil mammals. They've got a lot of them. Uh, so, so that's where I really kind of honed my skills and my expertise in fossil mammals. And what would you say for like people who want to pursue paleontology, but they're dealing with like naysayers, yeah, like discouraging them? That's a good, yeah, that's a, a tough one because I would say, you know what, you're going to get naysayers no matter what. I had them all the way through. Um, I still remember uh, family members asking me when I was in graduate school, asking, well, when are you going to settle down and get married? <laughs> so you, you get, you get these, you get it all away. I would say stick to your guns. I, you know, you know yourself better than anybody else knows you. And honestly, I think, um, I, I would hope, I don't know if this is true, but thinking back, I kind of go, you know, I knew I was going to be a paleontologist, darn it. And I'm not going to have somebody tell me no, I'm just going to say, well, thank you for your advice and keep going. And uh, it is what it is. Um, you're going to get these folks. And, and, and for what it's worth, I would say, um, and I do this with everybody and I recommend it to people, put yourself in their shoes. I think that's really important. It's something we probably don't do enough of because my teachers told me all the way through, you're not, you, paleontology? No. And, and you put yourself in, and now I put myself in their shoes and go, well, okay, small town Saskatchewan. I grew up on a farm six miles from town. The town had maybe a thousand people, if you're lucky. We had 200 kids in a school from K through 12. I graduated with 11 kids. Am I going to be a paleontology? What are the stats against me? Everything would have been against my doing that. So I look at these teachers and realize they're doing their best and they, they ultimately, their goal is to see their students succeed. And if they see little Jalen saying, oh, I'm gonna be a paleontologist and they've never met a paleontologist and you look at where I grew up, um, I think the odds were that I wouldn't do this were way stacked against me. And so I think they were doing their, I guess what I'd say is I think they're doing their best and they're trying to maybe teach me to be a little more realistic, but, um, but it didn't work. <laughs> so you I, uh, I still stick with it. And, um, 
and in hindsight, I kind of go, this is exactly what I wanted to be. But, you know, I think if you had asked me 30 years ago, would this have happened? I, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I know that you're a mother of three and I will be coming, be becoming a mother in uh, about four months. And I'm curious how you navigate the intersections of the role of being a mom and being a professional, particularly a professional in an academic setting? Boy, you know, in these, I think it has gotten better for folks to to be parents and to be academics, but certainly that hasn't always been the case. I think we've evolved a ways on that. So my oldest is 20, he's in college now, and then I've got a 13-year-old and 11-year-old, all boys. In any case, I think you can do both. You need to think about how you want to do both. But I'd say being a mom has helped me considerably in my in my job as an academic. I really do. I think for one thing, it's helped me to prioritize. You know, my kids are number one. And as long as I'm keeping that in mind, everything else needs to fit into place around that, around my my children's schedules. You do learn to use uh, your time efficiently. <laughs> I think that's a big one is that you learn, okay, well, if I've got 30 minutes to work on a paper this morning, I am going to work on that paper for 30 minutes. You need to you know, compartmentalize and to, to, to make things fit and maybe to become more efficient. At least that's what I learned in myself. And, you know, and the other thing is I think, um, especially now that I have a kid in college now, this has been a really interesting experience for me because I've always been at the other end. I'm the one in the classroom. I'm at the front of the classroom, the talking head, talking to all these 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Now I've got a 20-year-old and he's giving me stories of his professors. Well, professor so-and-so did this and professor so-and-so did that. And I'm, and I'm looking at it going, oh, I have another source of info here. I need to ask Nick if it would be appropriate or, or what if I talk about blah, blah, blah in my class? Um, how's a 20-year-old going to see it? And so I've actually been bouncing ideas off my 20-year-old and saying, so, you know, what's the biggest thing you found when you were 18, a freshman? What really scared you about college or your classes? Can you give me some tips into that? Because I don't remember that in myself, not as much. Um, and so Nick has been, uh, that's my oldest, has been um, really helpful and we're, we're able to... Um, seek guidance from each other as we go through university together in a sense where I'm teaching and he's uh, he's in the classroom he can provide me some super valuable feedback that I would never have had if I hadn't had a kid in college at that time um so so and maybe empathy too you know I kind of realize that that you know when my students now come up to me and say you know, Dr. Aberle, I didn't get that assignment done and it's because I was feeling really sick and, and you know, they have reasons. Um, I think knowing my son and knowing that he's probably given some of those reasons, I need to have a, you know, a little more heightened empathy for my students realizing that, yeah, they're, they're humans and they have, um, they get sick like the rest of us. They have troubles at home, challenges, things like that. And we need to, you know, maybe give them a little bit of a break now and then. So, and, and certainly my kids have, have taught me that. So that's great. Um, how neat that you've got a, a college student son that you can kind of uh, bounce ideas back and forth. It's pretty neat. It's been great um, seeing him evolve into his own person 
and um, and do well, make us proud, but also he's able to provide so much more um, advice and info and insight to me as I prepare my classes to teach kids that are basically his age. That's so cool. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Everly, for being here with us today. And thanks to Mariah as well. Um, again, this is episode two of Museum Unlocked. And we uh, welcome you back to our next episode coming up later. I'm Samantha Eads, Visitor Services Coordinator at the CU Museum. Thanks for listening to the Museum Unlocked podcast. You can follow the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History on Facebook at at CUMNH and Instagram at at CU Museum. You can also email us questions, comments, and support at cumuseum at colorado.edu. Learn more about our organization at colorado.edu slash cumuseum. And please explore our online resources for teachers and families, updated weekly on our Museum from Homepage.